Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be re-examining the sermon by the Sunday School teacher from Illinois, the one on open theism. This will be a continuation on our podcast from last week, and it'll kind of cover a few of the topics that we missed that he did try to address. So this Calvinist styles open theism primarily as a rejection of the future being known. He says that in open theism, the future cannot be known in any way and in any sense. And let's see if the quote that he uses by Gregory Boyd actually fits his definition of open theism. So here's a quote, Greg Boyd, big open theist. I begin convinced that the customary view, the view that the future is settled and God knows it as such, was mistaken. I came to believe that the future is, to some degree at least, open-ended and that God knows it as such. So that's where you get the name open theism from. The idea is that the future is completely open. God knows everything that is, but the future has not been decided in any way, shape, and form. Either decided or could be even seen. So it's probably not a very good idea to quote someone saying that the future is to some degree open and then going on to claim in the very next uh, series of sentences that open theism is the belief that the future cannot be knowable in any sense whatsoever. I don't think necessarily he's trying to be malicious when he's trying to say this. And So although most open theists wouldn't say that the future is completely open, I'm very sympathetic to this because, you know, when we do look at the Bible and the things that God says, it pretty much all is conditional on human actions, even the cross. Jesus, he said he could avoid the cross. He could call a legion of angels to save him from the cross. It's something he could do. And he says that specifically. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays to God. He says, you know, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He's saying, you know, Lord, I don't want to die. I don't want to do it. And uh, I don't want to pressure you into this decision. I just want to find an easy way to avoid this. But if not, you know, then that's okay. And we'll go ahead and do your plans. But Jesus was under the impression that if he really pressed for it, if he didn't condition it with uh, not my will but yours be done, then God might actually take his will. God might actually do what Jesus wanted God to do. And that's just not allowed in the theology of Calvinism. God can't commune with Jesus in that sense. Jesus's and God's wills have to be the same. And uh, there's not this idea that God can be influenced. The future set and what God says has to happen. Of course, if it doesn't happen, the Calvinists will say, oh, that was conditional. But it's always in this ex post facto way where you can never tell if a prophecy is conditional or not unless you see the results and see if it had been subverted or not. That's how Calvinism works. It's not falsifiable and they can't uh, accurately tell you what is a good prediction and what's a conditional prediction. So in our previous podcast, we pointed out that this Calvinist is involved with Plato's theory of the forms. And in this theory of the forms, there's some sort of perfect knowledge that exists in this heavenly realm, and it's the perfect representation of all things, and God apparently has this perfect knowledge. And this Calvinist invokes these ideas. So listen to how he talks and what he says. He says the open theists, their idea of God's knowledge is that just that God has more knowledge. But what he's proposing is something qualitatively different than just having a lot of knowledge. Let's listen. 
So God's knowledge is, uh, like I've got written here, God's knowledge is a quantity. He knows his knowledge in comparison to our knowledge is just that he's got more of it. So that's really the thing about Calvinism. Calvinists, they don't care if open theists try to redefine omniscience to mean something else, to mean God has all knowledge that can be known. That's not what's at issue. That's not what's at stake. Omniscience is just a byproduct of their overall belief. Calvinism is based in the platonic idea that God is this immutable, simple, self-actualized, pure-actualized being. It's pure Platonism, and uh, God can't change in any way, so it doesn't matter if God has all knowledge, if that knowledge is always expanding, because that introduces change into the Godhead, and that, that just cannot happen in the Platonistic concept. What's at stake to these Calvinists is not God's knowledge, but it's fundamentally who God is. And God can't be the God of open theism, always learning, even if he has all knowledge, and still be the God of Plotinus, this perfectly immutable being in this otherly realm that's perfectly simple with no parts and pure actuality. Those two concepts, they do not fit together at all. So we kind of see this in the works of Roger Olson. Now, Roger Olson is an Arminian. But he sympathizes with open theism, and it's precisely because the open theists, they are talking about the God of the Bible, whereas the Platonists, the Calvinists, they're not talking about the God of the Bible. They're talking about something completely different. Completely different. And Roger Olson, he's too politic to come out and say this straight away, but we understand from his writings that's where he's coming from, and he understands this very well. Here is Roger Olson, and he's writing an article about open theism. He writes, To me, this is a bigger, more important issue than open theism. That is because for me, and for many Arminians, the key to Arminianism is the character of God. That is what primarily distinguishes Arminianism from Calvinism. Arminians all believe that the God of Calvinism cannot be understood logically to be perfectly good and loving, and only Arminianism whether under that label or not, makes it logically possible to view God as perfectly good without going to universalism, as in the case of Barth and others in the Reformed tradition. Notice in Roger Olson here, the key difference between Calvinism and Arminianism is who God is. In Calvinism, God has no passions. God is pure actuality. God is pure simplicity. And I'm going to quote a Calvinist, and this Calvinist represents serious Calvinistic metaphysics. This is not like your average Piker Calvinist. This is a serious Calvinist scholar, Dr. James Dalzell, and just kind of listen to how he talks and what he thinks about God. And this is, this is Calvinist metaphysics to a T. This is Platonism. If you look at the works of Plotinus, this is exactly what Plotinus writes. Without Without a question, though, the statement that God is without passions is the most controversial of the three. In fact, it's here that you find uh, most people, even in a Reformed world, who take any exceptions on the doctrine of God, they tend to take an exception on this particular statement that God is without passions. Or if they want to continue saying God's without passions, they want to, they want to severely uh, qualify uh, what that means. So much so that I think often the end result is that you, you've lost the intent and what was really uh, being taught in the doctrine. Mm -hmm. um, in effect, the statement that God is without pa passions uh, 
follows naturally from God without parts, because if God doesn't have parts, uh, there's nothing there's nothing in God that can be reduced to actuality by some action outside Himself or even some action inside Himself. God doesn't God doesn't cause some inactive part of Himself to be active by some will in which He wills to act upon Himself. You notice the argument here. The argument is that God has no parts, and God has no parts. And not not like body parts or something like that, but just God has all one single solid metaphysical substance. There can be no chain. Because parts allow parts to be related to each other. And if these parts can be related to each other, change can be introduced into the Godhead. But Platonism, they cannot allow that. And so God is pure actuality, pure substance, and as such he cannot have passions in any sense of the word whatsoever, because passions implies change. Here's Dolezal again. If, then, if you really want to dig into some of the more basic metaphysical ontological commitments of the Reformed tradition, but I would say the classical Western tradition, right. uh, then then you know you would want to put some serious thought into what is meant by God without parts. In mm-hmm. short, it it's often mistaken to be simply a kind of exegetical statement about God without a body. God's without a body, including without parts, as if that's so, sort of just a, a side note explaining what it means to be without a body. He's immaterial. Um, that he's immaterial. Yeah. He's, so, he's immaterial. He doesn't even have, bo- he doesn't have a body. He doesn't have body parts. That's most certainly not uh, <laughs> what was in view. Of course, that's included in the statement, God is without parts, but most importantly, what the reform meant in saying that was to uh, was to attach themselves to the classical doctrine of divine simplicity, which said which says that God is in no way composed of parts, whether those parts are substance and accidents, uh, whether they are form and matter, um, whether they are more conceptual parts like genus and species, and maybe most importantly of all, that He's not composed of uh, of being in essence, and what I mean is active existence in essence. God is not composed of, of essay, active, active being, and essence. So most importantly, God is identical with the actuality uh, by which he is. This is, what, this is what we mean when we say that God is being itself, or I think a better way to put it— He's not it, becoming. God is not becoming, <laughs> like but I think the most important yeah. way to put it positively is that God is pure act. Yeah, if this sounds foreign to the Bible, that's because it is. This is not Jewish theology at all. This is Platonism. This is coming straight from the works of Plotinus. This was introduced into the church through ex-Platonists that swarmed into the church through the Gentiles' conversions. And uh, it's really incorporated in the church, and it's very antithetical to how the Bible's written. So these Platonists, like uh, Calvinists today, they have to reject the stories of the Bible. They have to say, you know, the Bible talks about God in this passionate language, but we kind of have to reject that because that violates our concepts of divine immutability. And, you know, that needs to be our overriding principle, these Platonistic concepts. So anything the Bible says, no matter what the Bible says, the Bible could say anything, but we have to reject that. Always what trumps the text is our theology we bring to the text. That interprets every single proof text everywhere in every single context. So back to the Calvinist from Illinois. Yeah, I mean, he's a Sunday school teacher. I don't know what education he has. I don't think he understands Calvinist metaphysics, and not very many Calvinists do. 
And so when you're talking to your standard Calvinists and you're trying to explain to them their own metaphysical system, some, sometimes they'll just not believe you, which that's kind of frustrating because their system, unless you follow the breadcrumbs from pure acidity to immutability to simplicity to omniscience and omnipotence, stuff like that, unless you follow those breadcrumbs, you know, your system does, does not work. It's inherently contradictory. And so a lot of Calvinists, they just won't understand divine impassibility, for example. And so they'll try to introduce into their system logical contradictions. And you can't explain it to them. They, they just don't understand the logical contradiction. And other Calvinists who do study metaphysics, they will be the first ones to point out the logical inconsistencies in these run-of-the-mill Calvinists. So the Calvinists, the, the heavy hitters in metaphysics, they will dispute against the non-heavy hitter Calvinists in metaphysics. But unless you got those quotes and you're able to show them what standard Calvinist metaphysics are, they're just not going to believe you and they're going to hold their contradictory beliefs. Because they understand the tension. The Bible is just not written in such that God does not have passion. God has extreme passions in the text of the Bible. And those passions often direct God's attitudes, God's activity. In one verse, God says, you know, I'm going to satisfy my wrath in you. He's like, I'm going to just burn and kill you all until I've satisfied my wrath. This is God satisfying his temper through action, burning off steam. And passages like these are very antithetical to an immutable God. So they, those passages have to be rejected in some fashion. But back to our Illinois friend. Any kind, well, this is another thing that opened DSC, which is that they kind of have a, we'll get into it in a second, but uh, they, they have the idea that if God does anything, if God displays any emotions, uh, the incarnation, uh, if God does anything, any act, that means that there is a change in God, which is wrong. But um, what, so what he's saying here is that if you're going to come from the, from the traditional idea that God is timeless and God acts, there is a change in his being, and that can't happen. Therefore, God has to be in time. So recall back to James Dolzell's quote on impassibility. He says, yes, 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 yes. In Calvinism, if God has emotion, that is a change. That is a definite change despite these other Calvinists who are going to try to tell you that that doesn't represent a change in God. In Calvinism, God's passion has to be totally self-contained and unchanging. That's the only way that it works, because God can't have parts, remember. God has to be pure actuality, pure simplicity. There needs to be no potency in God. There can't be anything in God that didn't pre-exist already in this immutable simplicity. Standard Calvinist metaphysics. And this uh, pastor from Illinois doesn't seem to understand that. So yeah, God acting in time, that is a definite change in God. That's why Augustine proposed, in our previous podcast, we talked that Augustine proposed that God, in order to speak in time, used a parrot creature because God can't do it himself. Remember, God is pure actuality, and this pure actuality is, is pure act. And so everything that happened... You know, it's all kind of rolled up into this metaphysical one, and it, it can't affect the timeless, immutable God in any way whatsoever. So everything's predestined, everything is pre-planned, everything is all one single entirety of creation. 
And this is where Calvinism, Platonism, kind of contradicts itself because the universe then has to be co-eternal with God. If God always existed and God can't make the universe because making something is a change, then how did this universe spawn? In Platonism, it's it's peeling off from the one, it's these dissensions from pure actuality. But, you know, how does that happen? How does God create that? Remember, in Platonism, God has no potential to create. It's only when you encounter Christians who are trying to incorporate Platonism into the Bible that this pure actuality then gets this ability to create things. If any of this sounds confusing to the listeners, that's because it is confusing. It's Platonism. You're not going to find these little treatises in the Bible about pure actuality and pure simplicity, and they just have to assume it out of texts. Texts that have nothing to do with it from authors who had nothing nothing to say about these metaphysical concepts. This is pure Platonism, and it's being injected into the Bible. The Bible is not irrational like this. The Bible doesn't talk in these categorical statements. The Bible is all about God, God's passions, God's interactions with mankind, things God says and does, and things that God thinks. The Bible is not Platonism, and the Bible is diametrically opposed to this Platonism. So our friend from Illinois, he interjects on God's timelessness and uh, what he thinks is a laughable concept of open theism and God's span of eternity. Second point is that God experiences time as we do. Uh, The classical position, which uh, we'll get into all the theology and everything next week as far as what we believe, but the classical position for orthodox believers is that God exists in a singular moment. He exists always in the present. And time is not divided up. So the generally you'll see it pictured as like the arrow going forward and then eternity passed before the beginning, before creation. And actually the, the best way to represent how God experiences time is just one singular moment. So he has the whole of his being in one present. So yeah, God experiences time as we do uh, when, when he created... He limited himself, he came into time, and now he experiences time just the exact same way we do. So like I said, like with his knowledge, that's why his knowledge is just as much as he, as much as he can have. It's not a quality of knowledge, it's a, an amount of knowledge, because he is in time with us. And it, there's, nothing, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that could have happened if that's what the Bible said, but that's not what the Bible says. So there's a big problem there. Really? It's not biblical? God says, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky so that on a future day it's going to remind me of what I told you in the past? And God's supposed to be in this timeless eternity? No, it's very non-biblical to propose that God's in this eternity, this single moment of time. You know, all their proof texts that they try to use to prove this are about God being in time. They'll say, you know, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Those are measures of time. So if you're going to try to prove that God is timeless, you might want to try to find a proof text that doesn't talk about God experiencing time. Because that's the opposite of proving that God is timeless. You know, the Bible doesn't support this timelessness in God at all. God is always learning and acting in time, and God's setting up reminders for himself. And in Malachi, you know, Malachi 3, that, that's their favorite proof text for God not being able to change. Well, the later part of that chapter, 
is about God writing a book to remind him about who the faithful are. Yeah, I don't think Malachi is about negative theology that they're trying to make it. It just doesn't work with the text. So he talks about this theory of time, which, which is a line. And, you know, you know, the Bible doesn't give any theory of time. It just doesn't. But it doesn't present God as timeless. That is contradictory to the text. God is doing things, burning in wrath for a while. God says, how long must I endear these people? It's about God endearing and God doing stuff and, and God having his emotions build up. And he, he says, you know what? I, I don't know what else I could have done for you, Israel. I've done everything I've tried. You know, now I'm just going to destroy you. And, and it talks about God's frustration. And things like that, they just don't happen unless God is experiencing, you know, sequence and time. And uh, this guy, he pretends that time is some sort of metaphysical thing that uh, exists. And, and I don't think time is something that exists. I don't think the Bible makes it as something that exists. You know, in the theory of relativity, you got, you like measurements. But then you got like the barn paradox, where you could fit a ladder that's longer than a barn. If it's in motion, you could fit it in a barn that is less than the measurement of the ladder. You know, these types of things work in theory of relativity. Time is like length, like distance, like color. It's a way to categorize something. It's a way to measure something that gives intelligibility. It's not like time is absolute. You know, you got the twin paradox where one twin goes off to an alien planet and comes back, and the twins are a different age. No, those things happen because time is not like hours, minutes, and seconds. Those are just ways to measure time. And those measurements are not always absolute. There could be differences in time measurements and stuff. But one thing we don't see is time travel. That concept is just irrational. It just doesn't work. There's no such time where you could go back to before an event and then affect that event. You just can't do that in any theory of relativity. And all the theories of relativity kind of lay out what I call presentism where there's always a present now, and that's all that exists. The past is done and gone away with, you know. And God is always trying to remind Israel about what the past was. He says, remember these things, remember of old, and I said this a long time ago. You know, it's always this remembrance of the past. It's never about him currently experiencing the past. Past is always something that's dead and gone, and something that can be referenced, but doesn't actually exist except for in memory. So this Calvinist assumes time is something that can be created, incorrect. He assumes that God can enter time, incorrect. He thinks that time is something that could, you know, doesn't have to exist. I don't agree with any of those principles whatsoever. I don't think he has any proof for any of those principles. In fact, our day-to-day -day experience tells us that presentism is true. We can't change the past. We can't time travel into the past. All we experience is the here and now. That is our most common frame of reference for understanding how reality works. And he wants to discard all of this. Why? Because he's got his Platonism. And this Platonism is not coming from the Bible. You get zero timelessness in the Bible. Instead, you got a God who's from everlasting to everlasting. you got a God who builds up emotion. And uh, he becomes angry. He becomes sad. You know, he's reacting in the moment to events that weren't foreknown. He's uh, responding to people and taking their advice and changing his plans based on their, their advice. It's all about change and process. It's 
It's all about presentism, the here and now. God's not time traveling. God's not going back in time to change the past. Stuff like that, it's science fiction. It's ludicrous, and it's not reality. And so when we need to start basing what we believe on what we could actually know and what is actually in the Bible, not based on these weird science fiction concepts that have no evidence whatsoever. Hand someone a Bible who's never seen it before, have them read the entire Bible, then ask them, you know, does God experience time like we do, or is he timeless, eternal? And what are they going to tell you? They're going to kind of laugh at you for even posing the question. Of course, God's in time. That's the entire story of the Bible. You read the Bible, that's every single narrative with God in it, is God doing stuff in time and reacting in the moment and being dynamic and being living. And the Platonists, the Calvinists, they want to supplant that with a dead, static God, the God of Plotinus, the God of the pagan Greeks, and that's what they want to worship. Let's talk about that real quick, and let's see what Calvinists believe about Jesus and how Jesus relates to God. So, um, you know, not all open theists are like this, but I've heard certain open theists say that the incarnation was a change in the being of God. And if you say that the Son of God didn't have a human nature, you're wrong and you're a heretic, which is wrong because the Son of God didn't have a human nature. The Son of God is the second person of the Trinity, apart from the human nature. Jesus, the God-man, had a human nature. And that's not a change because it didn't change anything to the being of God. He took on human flesh. Absolutely. Absolutely Calvinists are heretics. And they're not heretics because some council in 500 AD said they're heretics. They are heretics because the authors of the Bible call them heretics. You look at one of the problems that was going around in early Christianity, and it was these Platonists. And what would the Platonists claim? Number one, they would claim that Jesus didn't come as a body. Why can't Jesus come as a body? Because the Godhead is this immutable one that can't change. And, and uh, the, the flesh is evil. You know, remember, we have to abandon the flesh. And so Jesus can't be God. And so Jesus has to be either like a spirit being, like the Valentinians. They said that uh, God just, he didn't have a digestive system. And he had like this perfect body. It's it's. It's spiritualization of who Jesus was. And this was a literal heresy. Literal. So Colossians 2 was written by Paul, and it was really written to these Platonists, these Gnostics that were infiltrating Christianity. And as such, you know, this is the one place in the Bible where the word philosophy is used, and it's used here. And uh, you have to notice how Paul's argument is running. And it's all about, you know, who are the bad guys in this text? It's the people who are neglecting their body. And who are those? Those are the Gnostics. Those are the Platonists. These are these these uh, mystery cults who, who think that the flesh is evil. And then, and then the flesh and the divine are separate things. And there's no intermingling. And we have to discard the flesh. And that is who he's writing against. And so he says, you know, he says humility of the body, you know, that's just man-made religion. That's nonsense. And in Colossians 2.9, he says, for in Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. This is his slap in the face against these Platonists, against these Gnostics, against these modern-day Calvinists who think that there's a separation between the physical and the divine. That's not a Jewish concept, and Paul fought heavily against that because that was literal heresy. John also wrote during the Platonist infiltration of the church, and we read in John 1, And the Word, this is God, 
became flesh. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so there's no pulling on this fake human body that the Gnostics literally believed that. They were Gnostics, they were heretics. And John's writing against that, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And remember in John's revelation, Revelation 21, God lives with man. That's just a fact of the text. And that's what uh, all Jewish eschatology is looking forward, God dwelling on earth. It's, it's not this immutability concept, this, this perfect perfection in this ether world. God is just going to come live with man and reign in the kingdom of God perpetually with Jesus at his side. And you always see that in the throne room. God and Jesus are always there together. So John is dealing with these Gnostics, these Calvinists, these Platonists. And in uh, 1 John 1, 4, he says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. He's going to explain to us what makes a false prophet, what makes a heretic. By this you'll know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. John is saying these people who are spiritualizing this whole thing, who think that Jesus is separate from God and separate from the divine and there's a body and, uh, you know, and that's not really Jesus the Christ, not the Son of God. These people are heretics. They're false prophets. So, so literally, open theists are heretics because some council at some point in time said something. People who lived hundreds and hundreds of years after the people who wrote the Bible. The people who wrote the Bible called Calvinists heretics. The Calvinist doctrine is complete Gnosticism, and it was Gnosticism fought by both Paul and John that they both experienced later in Christianity once the Gentile influence really took off. Another key facet of Gnosticism is this secret knowledge, and they use this secret knowledge to interpret the spiritual things of the Bible. I'm going to leave you with this quote from the Calvinist from Illinois. And this quote can be multiplied. He says it throughout his uh, entire sermon multiple times in multiple fashions. But I'll let you listen to this and try to wonder, is this Gnosticism, is he claiming some secret spiritual knowledge that's given to only the elect in order to interpret the secreted things of the Bible that is not apparent in the text? Okay, so they are going to put the focus on the economic trinity over the ontological trinity. They are looking at God as he has revealed himself to us in time as opposed to the incomprehensible God that is outside of time. Since the Bible has revealed God for us to know, they say that's all that we need to know. That's really all that we can know, and therefore God has to be that way. What we see in just the plain words of Scripture without getting into all of our theological jargon and explanations of how can God be um, incomprehensible and yet still reveal himself to us as we are? Nope, throw it out. It's, that's all that there is to it. The Calvinist claim is that the Bible literally presents us a false picture of God, which needs to be supplanted by the secret knowledge that's not found in the text. Calvinism is Gnosticism. So that is all we have time for today. But uh, listen to our podcast on the classical attributes. Listen to our podcast on religion in the first century, and you'll kind of understand what Gnosticism is, what Calvinism is, what these negative attributes are. You'll, you'll put the pieces together that Calvinism is a modern form of Gnosticism. 
If you have questions or comments on this podcast, feel free to put them on our God is Open webpage or start a thread on our God is Open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening. Thank you.